And thank you for listening to Memoria's six-series podcast, The Loss of a Loved One. After the most difficult of years, we have created this series to help those who have been directly impacted by the loss of a close family member, a good friend, or a member of our own local communities. In the previous episodes, we looked at the impact of loss. We covered modern-day choices in funerals, and episode three was a very moving production on bereavement with some heartfelt personal stories. In episode four, we looked at three aspects of the funeral industry, the traditional funeral from the Victorian era, the changes this century, and the impact of the past year on the industry, and how these changed attitudes will alter family choices in the future. Statistics now show that more and more families are asking for a more modern approach to their families' end-of-life service requirements. In fact, there has been a significant increase in people looking for celebration of life services. It is somewhat ironic, then, that what is now increasingly becoming just that, a celebration of life, is indeed being led by a celebrant, as against a religious or community leader. This series was put together to provide a better, clearer understanding of the choices available to families and close friends who are given the honour and responsibility of organising a funeral for a loved one or close friend. This person becomes the applicant and it is the applicant that can choose and make decisions having discussed the wishes of the deceased with family members. The content of a funeral, the ingredients, are a critical part of what is often a very sad day. Of course, Many people are facing loss for the very first time and will perhaps not know or understand just what these choices are or can be. But one thing is very clear, it is the family and moreover the applicant that decides on just what the content of the day is to be. Experiences have shown that without doubt it is the actual service itself and indeed the oh so important eulogy and the person delivering the service that are so vital to ensuring the day itself, which is always the most difficult of days, provides comfort and closure to those that attend. So when anybody assumes the responsibility of making these arrangements, it's so important that they really do understand just what impacts on people most on these very sad occasions. Again, statistics have proved just what matters to families most, and significant research has been undertaken on just how families felt after experiencing a funeral service the actual length of the service and not feeling rushed, the location of the service and the surroundings, the professionalism and ability of the person leading the service, the content, the eulogy, the pictures, the lighting, the music, the people. That is it. Nothing else registered with people as significant or important. And what is more, every aspect of these four points can be chosen by the applicant on behalf of the deceased and the family. You can arrange a funeral service knowing exactly where you want it, how long you want it, who you want to deliver the service, and exactly what you want contained within the service. These points are the most important components of the day. So today, in episode 5 of The Loss of a Loved One, we focus on these hugely important issues, and I am delighted to be joined by the CEO of Memoria, Howard Hodgson, and three professional celebrants from the North West, the North East, and the Midlands to discuss their thoughts on the modern funeral service. Maggie Hutchinson is from the beautiful city of Chester, Maria Bailey from the stunning cathedral-blessed city of Durham, and Jill Walters joins us from Derby, a city with an incredible heritage and history. 
Howard, ladies, welcome to episode 5 and can I firstly thank you so much for taking part today in helping again to take this sensitive subject matter onto this very modern and certainly different platform. In my opening comments I alluded to the difficulties of the past year, which has been a deeply distressing time for thousands of families and has had a profound effect on hundreds of communities. As representatives of the funeral industry, we have all seen how dramatically our profession has altered in recent times. The technologies, the remote interaction and processing of paperwork, the modernisms such as streaming, LED lighting options, media production, sound quality and picture presentation. In this episode's title, we positioned the word celebrant foremost. Later, Howard will talk about the aspects of religion in funeral services. So can I firstly ask you your thoughts on how you see your role as a celebrant? Tell us a little bit about what made you want to become a civil celebrant, something about your training and what was involved, and how you see your chosen profession de- developing in the coming years. Maggie, if you'd like to respond, and Jill, if you could respond after Maggie and Maria, perhaps you would like to add to this after Jill. Firstly, thank you very much for inviting us all. It's super important that the voice of the celebrant is heard, because the service that we offer is a vital element of the choice that the applicant has when making these end-of-life arrangements. So in preparation for today, I've canvassed the opinion of many of my colleagues through the various forums and support groups that we belong to. So I feel I can offer a voice other than just mine when I answer your questions today. Great question. Why did I choose to become a celebrant? After attending many funerals over the years of all types, and with Sharp Focus realised that quite simply I felt better if it was a good service. And I felt short-changed and almost towards anger if the service was mediocre or almost poor. So I began to research the skills and personal attributes that a person might need to officiate the service themselves, which led me to discover what a celebrant is. And I realised that throughout my life, My journey has equipped me with this necessary skill set. So here's what I think the skills of a celebrant are. You do need to be super organised, a confident public speaker. You need a calm and reassuring manner where nothing really phases you. And beyond that, your sensitive interviewing skills are vital. You need to demonstrate your warmth and your authenticity when building a relationship with an applicant. It goes without saying, I think, that you need good literary skills and writing skills. And maybe less obvious, you need a sense of fun. So when I realised, do you know what? You can do this, Maggie. I set about finding out how to do it. So my research at first was desktop and then I made phone calls and I landed upon the Institute of Professional Celebrants to do my training, um, which I did as a residential course in 2019 and enjoyed it very, very much. There was a group of 12 of us and it was practical, literary based with some filming and some some real life role playing So the the Institute continue to support me today and they continue to be an industry-wide voice um, across the globe for celebrants like me. And they also are influencers of the policymakers with their pragmatic approach to modern celebrancy. So that led me to think of the third part of your question, development-wise for myself. 
I'd like to see a greater awareness for our role in order that people in general do feel as though they have a choice at this very, very difficult time in, in, in their lives. Word of mouth works, personal recommendation works, community engagement once we're allowed back to enjoy that, networking and of course a marketing and promotional um, plan of your own uh, where you do a social media push with a content plan, all good stuff. But as far as it really goes, every service that I do is my best advert. So Jill, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that resonates with me, Maggie, as well. Um, So personally, I experienced a light bulb moment um, at my father-in-law's funeral, which was about four years ago. My experience of funerals to that date was largely limited to church funerals. But my husband and his brothers didn't feel that was appropriate for their dad. So as I sat there watching the celebrant, I realised that, that much as Maggie said, really, that the skill set required for the job exactly matched my own. You know, and and some of the things I picked up on, which many of which Maggie has already said to us, um, public speaking, the ability to talk to anyone and everyone, sympathy, empathy, organisational skills crafting beautiful words to reflect the life of the person who's died and all that they meant to their family and friends and also working effectively with other professionals. From my years of experience as a lawyer and because of my years of involvement in our local community um, and and the people element of that I knew that celebrancy was something for me that I wanted to look into and I trained uh, with a different organisation to Maggie. uh, I trained with the wonderful Civil Ceremonies Limited and the managing director, Anne Barber, has been a driving force within Celebrancy since its early days. Every funeral has to be exactly right. And so at civil ceremonies, we were trained to a very high standard, ready to lead our first funeral from the moment we qualified. Recently, I was privileged to be asked to take the funeral for a man whose wife's funeral was the first one I ever took. So I think that request was testament to the training that I received. Um, And since qualifying 18 months ago, you know, it's been wonderful to walk alongside such fantastic families, uh, you know, at their darkest hour. Now, Frank, you asked for our views on how celebrancy might develop in the coming years. In my opinion, uh, when a celebrant leads a funeral, it's driven by the wishes, values and beliefs of the person who's died and their family, and not by the beliefs and ideology of the celebrant. Most celebrants are happy to include as much or as little religious content as the family wishes, or none at all. And I've found that by supporting families to plan and deliver a funeral which focuses on the life of their loved one, this can be a great source of comfort to the families. It can also be a great help in the grieving process. And the flip side, as Maggie alluded to, is that if the funeral is not as they wanted it to be, this can hinder the grieving process. And my view is that celebrant-led funerals will continue to increase as a proportion of all funerals. That's for a number of reasons, really. Families are becoming more aware of the role of a celebrant and the flexibility available when a celebrant leads a funeral. Society is arguably changing to focus more on the wishes of individuals rather than people being expected to behave in a certain way in any given situation, as as may have traditionally been the case. 
And my final thought is that the number of celebrants training will also continue to increase, quite likely, at a greater rate than the work available. Training providers are offering a greater number of courses than ever before. The pandemic has seen many job losses, and with that, people who are considering alternative careers uh, and celebrancy will be one option looked at by some who found themselves out of work. So, Maria, how do you see it? Well, I think that the two of you, um, Maggie and Jill, have covered obviously a lot of ground but going back to how I first became interested um, in the role of a celebrant and I can still remember the setting about 10 years ago I went to a funeral of a neighbour and this was the first celebrant led funeral I'd been to and I was amazed I can still remember the amazement I felt at listening this service was so different and so personal and also what struck me was the music the music was joyous and it was her favorite songs and that didn't fit with my understanding of what a funeral was and I can remember thinking then I can still see the the celebrant standing at the lectern and I can still remember thinking how do you get to do that how can I get to do that at the time it wasn't feasible I would do that Um, It came to a head again three years ago, we were arranging the funeral of my father, who had insisted he wanted a Catholic service with a burial. So that's what we gave him. So my brother and I met with the priest once for about half an hour, 45 minutes to gather all the details. And I remember then being angry during the service where he got details wrong. And I thought, you didn't check anything. You know, I almost felt like some people I hear do shouting, that's not right, that's not what we've told you. I was uh, invited to do a reading, so I gave a reading from the Bible, chosen by the priest, because my father hadn't left any specific wishes. And I can remember standing at the lectern, looking out, thinking, yeah, this is what I would like to do. Um, For the past five to ten years we have been spending a lot of time in Spain and for five years following a personal experience with breast cancer I formed and led a breast cancer support group in Spain and during that process I came a lot of across a lot of ladies who were suffering stress and how do I cope with my cancer and then unfortunately we lost quite a few of the contacts we made through breast cancer And as Brexit was coming, being more and more obvious as to come into being, we realised that if we had to make a choice where we were going to live, it was going to be England. England was always home with family. So it was at that point I thought, well, what what can I do now? I wasn't ready to do nothing. The the charity work was all voluntary. And I thought, celebrancy, I can get into that now. So finding a training provider is... mind-boggling because you search on Google on the internet and all this great long list of providers come down and you don't know how to choose. One of the the groups I was in in Spain is called Costa Women and it's a social networking group for ladies and we have all conferences and different events and I saw a, a comment from a lady called Costa Celebrant so I thought oh she's in Spain she's a celebrant I'll find out And she told me that she trained with Institute of Professional Celebrants, IPC, and she was in fact one of the trainers. So that was my link to choosing that profession, uh, that organisation. So I too trained with IPC, as did Maggie, but I just trained last year. Um, And because the pandemic was installed, then we 
had to have um, online training, which at first I was very hesitant against because I'm very much a people person. I like interaction and learning from each other. And we had the week's intensive training online and it worked surprisingly well. As a team, as a group of 10, we gelled really quickly, which is amazing considering we still haven't met each other, but we're still very supportive. The training was really, really good. We had four constant trainers, which two trainers, and we interacted morning and afternoon. We also did mock ceremonies. We, we gave you, we wrote eulogies. We were assessed, peer assessment on the eulogies. We were recorded doing the eulogies. So I, we came away feeling that we'd had really good training. I did a lot of pre-training preparation because my background is education I was a lecturer and a trainer and all this so I have to prepare so I was very very prepared and I was glad I did so that's really how I came around to becoming a celebrant but as with Maggie and Jill I agree the family are at the forefront of any service we create we have to listen to what they want Never mind our idea of you have two readings or you have three songs. It's up to them what they want. Um, and that is the key. And sometimes we have to step back. I did a service last week for a young boy who, who sadly had committed suicide and it happened to be at the Memoria Kirk Leatham site. Absolutely beautiful premises. But the family said from the start, three, three family members are going to give a tribute. Do you want a eulogy? No. So you accept that and you work around that. And I told them all, you know, if at any time you feel it's too much, don't worry. I have a copy of what you're going to say. I'll stand in. So my role was very much to support the family. And there was a lot of laughter during the ceremony, which was lovely to hear because this was a, a family torn apart with grief at the sudden loss of their only son. And yet I felt this is the service they wanted. They were all happy with the service lovely music was chosen but that was their choice as for going forward how we see the profession developing the frustrating bit at the moment is that we rely so heavily on funeral directors for work the family have to be taught that they have choice and that is more awareness raising that is more networking unfortunately we don't think of funerals in general until somebody has died and by then you're panicking around in the dark you know who, who do I turn to you turn to your nearest funeral director or as I know has been happening during the pandemic more and more people are going online but we need to make people know everybody know that they have a choice and if they get to know us and they like us they can ask for us they don't have to accept from the funeral director I'll sort somebody out for you so there is a lot of work to do I think we have to be more proactive and I think people are starting to do that Thank you so much, ladies. That was that was absolutely amazing. I, I often use the word insightful. In fact, you probably, you know, you, you've seen that or heard that from me before. But um, you know, some of the some of the points you've raised there, canvassing local opinion, which I think is, you know, the skills and attributes that a celebrant needs, the sympathy, the empathy, the crafting of eulogies and use of words, ideologies of the family. Maria, thank you for that example there. Where, where I think what we're saying there is, you know, that they're, they're, uh, if we're using a religious leader, which Howard's going to go on to later, perhaps they're not focused on the one thing. They've got hundreds of things to do and they get things wrong, which I think in a way is unforgivable. Um, but, you know, as you were saying at the end there, families choosing, but with your support, I think that's absolutely amazing. So thank you very much for your feedback there, ladies. 
Howard, good morning, and again, thank you for joining us today to draw on and share your extensive experience. Howard, we have included in this production the subject of religion in funerals. It's fair to say that until around about the 1980s, it was given it was a given that your loved one's service would be delivered by a member of a religious community. What changed and why? Can you expand on why in recent history so many families have chosen a celebrant as against a religious leader and perhaps expand on what religion can do to alter this seemingly irreversible trend? When I first became a funeral director, um, Paul McCartney and the Beatles were number one with a song called Hey Jude. So that's quite a long time ago. And in fact, funerals were usually... 10 minutes, maybe 15 if you were lucky, 10 minute service times at a crematorium. There was a rota minister. He didn't mention your mother's name. He probably often got her sex wrong and you came out to wait another five services going in. And in fact, they were very impersonal. And really nothing uh, looked like changing because of two reasons. One is that people were very used to doing as they were told. And secondly, because a service was controlled by religion. Not that that was a bad thing. The, the, the fact is that it was just something you didn't have a choice about. People expected you. The, the national religion was C of E, unless you said, I am a Methodist or I am a Roman Catholic or I am something else, you're C of E. It wasn't you might not be nothing, you were C of E. And uh, so it was all conforming. And that continued probably until uh, we had in the 19, uh, late 70s and early 80s, we had a prime minister called Mrs. Thatcher. And Mrs. Thatcher decided to sell council houses very cheaply. She decided to denationalize industries. And this had either on purpose an effect or maybe an accidental effect, but it certainly changed everybody's perception. Suddenly everybody, because they were a homeowner and because they'd uh, denationalized industries, they'd become a shareholder in BT or something, they suddenly had middle-class aspiration and they were not going to be told what to do anymore. And the fashion of death actually just follows the fashion of life. So suddenly people wanted quite a lot more and they were much more assertive about what they wanted. That came into play at the same time with the demise of religion. And as religion went down and the family suddenly got control of the service, it meant that actually they weren't having people anymore telling them, you will have the 23rd Psalm Crimmins, you will sing Abide With Me, or you won't have any hymns. More often than not, there was actually no mention. It was just uh, psalm, prayers, hymns, uh, uh, and that's it. Uh, and so the as that disappeared, as people became more aware, it was a question, really, I don't think there might be a God. I mean, when people had perhaps a worse life and they were told to believe in a God and there was a God in their minds, and I'm having a rotten time here and I'm going to Beulah land one day, they were more, cons more likely to believe. But as people then became silver surfers going onto the internet, their Apple Mac didn't prove to them there was a God, so there can't be a God. And as a result, religion comes to a much less focal point when it comes to the demise of somebody, when it comes to somebody passing away. And as a result of that, religion didn't become the first of because the family now had control of the service. Prior to that, they had to express themselves via the number of limousines they had, the, the, number, the amount of flowers they chose where the wake was, the sort of coffin they chose. That was the only way they could really express themselves because they weren't allowed to express themselves in the service. 
And when celebrants came along, and celebrants actually shouldn't be confused with humanists, because humanists are religious people as well. They're just non-religious people. They're saying, you know, take that crucifix out of here. They're not, in fact, they're, they're having non-religious services. Celebrants will have religious services partially or totally or not at all because they're there to do what the family wants. And that, in fact, has been a very important uh, development because it's allowed the fact that people are more assertive, the fact that they're less concerned about uh, religious content to the service. They want it to be individual. Means that also when we introduced in, I had a lot of internal opposition in Memoria when I introduced one hour services in 2012. Most people thought that was absolutely mad, that in fact this was an outrageous thing to be doing because it meant that people would have to wait longer for their services because we could do less services in a day and that therefore we would lose to the municipal crematoria as a result of that. Actually, it didn't happen at all. It was quite the opposite because people then could have 40 minutes and on our service, they could have 40 minutes in the service, 10 minutes to, to meet and greet afterwards and 10 minutes to clean the site. Because the one thing the public hate more than anything else outside the service is seeing another service because that, that just takes away the whole feeling of it is for them on the day. So just to be in a conveyor belt, a tragic conveyor belt of bereavement, as a, uh, there are certain crematoria in London, very big municipal ones, where they have traffic lights in, in the ground, so that, and you move up step by step. Those sort of things are abhorred by people today. So the celebrant has been a very big development, because he's allowed, or she's allowed, people to actually go to a service and a bit like a, um, somebody who's designing a wedding ceremony, they are able to design that service and to have in that service a number of prayers if they want prayers, not to have prayers, to have photographs revolving around either for the whole service or at a particular point in the service, to have the best pieces of music that were applicable, uh, whether it was uh, I could have danced all night from My Fair Lady, uh, let it be by the Beatles. There is a top 10 in this. Uh, the, you know, it used to be Frank Sinatra, then it became Elvis, now it's the Beatles, soon it'll be Duran Duran. And, and in fact, the, the, it goes on because that's what was important to those people at the time. And that expression, we had one of those services from my 94-year-old mother recently, a celebration of life service. And with 75 photographs revolving around her, several members of the family standing up and saying anything, on her coffin were 650 pounds worth of roses. Nobody noticed them. They weren't noticed at all because they were so concentrated on celebrating her life. That was an amazing thing. And the great thing about having celebrants is that they can actually be there to help a family, either to help a family take the service themselves or to take the service for the family, but they are experienced people who are allowing a family to express themselves and not trying to sell them any form of, uh, of dogma. And so from that point of view, I think that it's a very good development. I think, though, it will change. I think that celebrants will perhaps start to become funeral directors, and I think perhaps funeral directors will become, there's very a lot of evidence already, we see that quite a lot of funeral directors are becoming celebrants and are taking their own services. So the situation is, I think, that is bound to happen because the, not only are celebrants here to stay 
and will become the natural focal point of a funeral going forward. But I think the Victorian funeral is dying, and it's dying at a pretty rapid rate. I don't think people see the importance of hearses or limousines or the sort of coffin, or if we had a double raised lid panelled oak, it's, that's a difference because they can express themselves in the service now. And I think all of those things will continue to change. Will celebrants uh, increase? Yes, they, they, will be, they will increase in the importance of a service and they will become more central. And I can think that's only a good thing because it actually means that you can have religion if you want it, or you needn't have it if you don't want it. it the choice is yours. Thank you, Howard. Can I thank you for taking the time to listen today to the fifth of our six-episode series, The Loss of a Loved One. Our next instalment, episode six, will be entitled Hope, and I will be joined by both Laura Toop and Lucy Hurd, grief and bereavement specialists. In this, the final part of this series, we will draw on these very experienced professionals, very profound experiences, and talk openly about the journey of bereavement and the many avenues of hope that can help give you strength and belief. These podcasts are free to listen to via Amazon, YouTube and Spotify. For further information, please contact me directly via LinkedIn or at memoria.org.uk and I will happily provide you with the links to access the series. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.